this morning to the book of James. James chapter 1, actually. James 1, 22 through 27, not James 2. James 1, 22 through 27. As I, as I mentioned in my prayer, uh, we're coming up to our AGM at the end of the month. So three weeks from today is our AGM. And as we mentioned before we left uh, on our trip, we're seeing a lot of exciting things happening in our church. And I, I believe it's time for this young church to begin to move forward in some, in some very real ways to expand our ministry and to do the things God wants us to do. It's, it's, it's great to have this um, us four and no more mentality. It's nice, it's nice to have a small little group like this. We all know each other. We all love each other. Um, we have no problems with divisions. And it's a nice place to be. And, but the reality is this is not what God wants for a local church. God wants us to be reaching out to our community, to our friends and our neighbors, to share the love of God with them, to show them how they can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, we, want, we need to be making changes in our community. We need to be drawing people to Christ. And we're looking at how we're going to do that and what about buildings and all this kind of stuff. So I thought I'd take this month and we'll, get, we'll finish up. We will finish the book of Acts eventually, I promise you. We don't have that much left. But I want to take this month and preach some very practical messages as we get ready to come up to our AGM of the month. And as I prayed and I came back exhausted with um, jet lag this time, got back on Monday, I had to go to work on Tuesday, um, and it's just really, it's been beating us up all week. So I began praying, Lord, what can, what can we share? And the Lord kept drawing me back to James chapter 1, verse 22 through 27. It's probably a verse, you, you, might, you might know the verse, I'm going to read the passage to you, and then we're going to look at some truths that are there. Um, James writes to the church there, you know, verse 21 goes back and he begins here and he finishes the same notion up. Uh, he says, therefore lay aside all filthiness and over, overflow of wickedness. I like the old King James there, the old King James phrase there, lay aside all superfluity of naughtiness. Don't you like that? That is such a neat phrase, superfluity of naughtiness. Um, but all the, oh, the, 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 the overflow of wickedness receive with meekness of the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And that's the basis for what we're talking about here, okay? If we've been saved, the word of God, uh, the New King James says implanted, the Old King James says that the word of God has been grafted into our lives if we're truly saved. It's like when you graft two trees together to grow a different kind of fruit. I know, I know nothing about horticulture, okay? But I remember pictures when I was in school about showing how you could put one twig into another tree and you graft it in and it can produce different fruits. And I think you can, you can grow apples on a peach tree and stuff like that, um, from what I understand. All right, so it says that the Word of God, back in verse 21, that's the background for this, the Word of God has been grafted or implanted in our hearts and it's the word of God that's able to save our souls now most of us here I think have, have made a profession of faith and we put our faith in Jesus Christ we're trusting him for salvation we're trusting him for eternity and so the word of God has been engrafted I love that phrase because the Bible talks about the fact in Hebrews that the word of God is a living book and it's alive and we're only going to change as we let God's Word become a part of who we are. Not just this book we set aside, 
but it's a book that can change our lives because once it's been engrafted to us. So what we're supposed to do as you do your devotions every day, I hope, um, after you come to church, as you listen to pop Christian podcasts and read Christian books and all those kind of things, is we're allowing God's Word not just to take root, to begin to flourish and bear fruit in our lives. It's like that tree. Does anybody know, can, can you grow apples on a peach tree? If you Can I use that illustration? Does anybody know for sure? You can? Oh, I'll, use, I'll use that illustration then. All right? It produces a new fruit in our lives. And that's what God's Word is supposed to do to us. It's supposed to change our lives. Uh, I've been reading in Galatians, the passage we did at the table this morning. Um, he said, uh, I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, but not me that lives, it's Christ that lives in me. We're told back in um, um, Romans, if any man be in Christ, he's a new... No, First Corinthians. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. So we are different than we were before we got saved. Our lives are changed. We're a whole new being. So what do we do with that knowledge? Most of us have that head knowledge. Uh, I went to a Sunday. We went to a Sunday school class while we were in the states, and the guy in the Sunday school class was talking about um, some of the bold judgments in Revelation, and um, it's good knowledge to have. But the question, but a lot of the city, we can sit here. I can sit here, and I've did it for years. We can sit here week after week, and we can hear God's word preached. We can read our, we can do our devotions. We can, we can, we can go through our life being hearers of the word, and hearing the word is a good thing, isn't it? Is it good to read your Bible? Yeah, is it good to hear sound Bible preaching? Of course it is. Is it good to expose ourselves, maybe listen to the Bible on walks, whatever? That's all good stuff. But the problem is it's not enough. It's not enough to just be hearing. So Paul or James continues that in James chapter 1. In verse 22 he says this, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He is like a man observing his his unnatural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, he goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks at the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceiving his, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphan, orphans and um, widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, I pray we'd examine our hearts as we move towards the end of the month. Lord, I pray that we would examine our hearts now to see whether we are doers of the Word or whether we're content just to come, hear it, and go on our way. Lord, teach us the lessons that we need to have for today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, he starts out this. Paul, James writes, Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. God knows that we have a tendency to hear and to not do. 
How often have you been here or someplace else, maybe listened to a tape, maybe did your devotions, and the Holy Spirit says to you, you need to work on that part of your life. You need to make some changes. And you say, you know what, Holy Spirit? Yeah, I really do need to make those changes in my life. But you walk out that door, or you go to work, or whatever happens in your life, and nothing ever changes. If I asked for a raising of hand, which I'm not going to do, my hand would be first. I've done that over and over again. Holy Spirit says, Roger, fix this. And so many times, I said, boy, I do need to work on this. I get caught up in the busyness of the world. I go to work. I deal with people, whatever's going on. And, and, and I just go on my way. And pretty soon it kind of fades from my memory. And I don't see the need to make that change. James says here, we need to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Uh, we can't, it's not good enough just to read the Bible to hear it. We've got to do something about it. We're going to do something, yet we, we, we just carry on like nothing changed. And what does he say in the next part of that verse? What does he say? If we are hearers and not doers, look at the end of verse 22. All right, What are we doing if we are hearers? but not doers. Can somebody tell me the last couple of words of verse 22? Deceiving ourselves. Alright? Boy, that's powerful. Every one of us, to some extent, has the ability to deceive other people, don't we? Let's just be honest. We can play the religious game. We can play the church game. We can play the Christian game and we can fool everybody else out there. Um, but Paul says, or James says, if you do this, you're not deceiving them. He says you're deceiving yourself into a false sense of security, into the kind of Christian that you are. And that's a danger, isn't it, when we deceive ourselves because we get this idea, well, I go to church and I do my devotions and, and I read my Bible and I pray every day and I, all that is good, but you know deep down you're not what you're supposed to be. I'm 40, Janie, Mac, 43, 44 years a Christian now, 45 years a Christian, something like that. And I still can be caught in the trap of deceiving myself into thinking that I'm more than I really am spiritually. So James says you're deceiving yourself if you are a hearer and not a doer. The truth is that we need to apply God's Word to our lives. We, we, we can fool those around us. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever, whatever you reap, you're going to sow. Don't be deceived. God is not going to be mocked. We can blame the devil. I remember way, 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 way back, way back in the 60s, there was an afternoon comedy show. Um, it's called Roan and Martin's Laughing. can't believe I remembered that. And Flip Wilson was a comedian on there. And one of the things he said that became popular was, the devil made me do it. Every time that you may have heard that phrase, the devil made me do it, he's the one who first popularized it. And every time he did something stupid on the show, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. <clears throat> The tragedy is, yeah, Satan does work in our lives. He's alive. 
He's roaming the face of the earth, seeking whom we may devour. He's trying to destroy our testimony. He's trying to destroy our walk of God. And He does affect us. But you know what? Sometimes it's me who steps out of line. Sometimes it's just my stinking flesh that gets in the way. And it's me who does the things that God doesn't want me to do. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And then he looked at verse, I, I love the illustration he uses here. If anybody is like a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Um, he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what manner of man he was. Talk about somebody, you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror. I try to avoid that as much as possible. It's a scary thing, first thing in the morning. But if you look in the mirror, and, and the, the illustration is so clear here. You're going to work, you're going to school, you want to make sure you look nice, and you spend time looking in the mirror, and you see your hair is messed up or whatever. All right? You see a bit of, bit of spinach in your front teeth that you somehow missed when you brushed them the night before. All right? You see whatever. You see something hanging out of your nose. Whatever. All right? And, whoa, I better do off that before I go. Before I, that was a great one for the boys. All right? And, 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 and you think, well, I, I need to deal with that. And then you get distracted and you walk away and you go out in public with that problem where everybody can see it. Okay? And no, everybody's too polite to tell you about it. And maybe you're not dressed right. Maybe, maybe, maybe you buttoned your shirt and they're not buttoned properly. I did that one day and I spent the entire morning with my shirt buck, button crooked. And those are embarrassing things. Paul says, James says, that's exactly what you do when you look into the Word of God. And you see something wrong and you won't deal with it. You're just like that man that looks in the mirror and just goes away and forgets what's wrong. Okay? That's a great illustration, isn't it? You see a change that needs to be made, you just don't bother doing it. Maybe you forget. Maybe it's not a high priority. But that's what happens when we take God's Word. And we think that if we're we're going to church and we're praying and we're reading our Bibles and we're doing all the things we're supposed to do, we think that we're pretty religious, don't we? Hey, I'm doing a pretty good job at this thing. Read my Bible, pray every day, go to church, I'm faithful, blah, 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 blah. I'm doing a pretty good job. But if we do that, we're deceiving ourselves. Because James is going to take this thing now, and he's going to tell us what real religion is. And that's the crux of this verse. We could have taken a lot longer here. But that's the crux of this is we're going to find, we get down to verse 26 and 27. So let's let's move down there. He looks, um, but he who looks in the perfect law of liberty... And continues in it. He is not a forgetful hearer of the word, but a doer of the work. A doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So James says, doing means remaining. Doing means we take God's word, we meditate on it, we make it a part of our lives, we continue in the word of God, we do the word of God, and that's where we find real change. As we see what God tells us to do, and we obey it. But I want to focus on verse 26 and 27. That's why that's on the, on the page there. Because there are three things that manifest real, pure religion. I don't even like the word religion much anymore because it's been so corrupted by the world. If any man thinks, to re, if any man thinks he is religious 
He thinks he's got this laid out right. And there are three tests here in verses 26 and 27. The test here is what is our real relationship, the religion that works in our life. The first thing that real, the first way, now I'm not being clearly specific. James obviously did not mean to cover everything in this one passage. But it gives us three things that we can check to see what if our faith is really working. First thing he says is this. Do we have a controlled tongue? If anybody among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, his, this one's religion is useless, maybe worthless in some translations. If we can't control our tongue, our religion is worthless. What do you, why? Why? Can somebody give me an idea why that's such a big deal? Why, why, would, why would the Word of God say if we can't control our tongue, our religion is worthless or useless? Somebody help me. Any ideas? Doesn't the Bible say that that which is from a man's, which comes out of a man's mouth, comes from his heart? And if we can't control our tongues, what does that say about our heart? I can do all the right things, but if I can't control my tongue, and I'm being divisive and all those kind of things, it is. It, 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 the, let me just read you. I'm going to go quick. I'm going to read quickly. Read you. James goes on to go back and cover this. Uh, I just want to read you. Um, if you have a, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look with me at um, still in James, James chapter three verse one. Jump down there. That's not James two. Is it? I said James, James one at the beginning. Oh, I did. Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you, though. Why don't you look down at James chapter three? I have a message on this called the, the, the church's most wicked member. What I'm going to read you doesn't take any explanation. This is why we have to have a controlled tongue. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that ye shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anybody who does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. He says here, if we can't control our tongue, those who can control the tongue have got this beaten. Um, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body with that bit. Look also at ships. Although they are so large, and they're driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Big, massive ships are controlled by that little rudder at the back. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. You look at the, 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 pers- the perspective of the tongue compared to the rest of the body. Not a, very, not a very big part of the body, is it? But it controls the rest of the body. Um, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. It is set, upon, set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame his tongue. It's an unruly evil. It's full of deadly poison. 
With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made out of the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a spring send forth water, fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Paul or James writes here that the tongue is the hardest thing to control. That's the first test of whether or not our faith is real is can we control our tongues? I hope y'all can, can I don't don't have to raise your hands, but do you see what he's saying here? From personal experience maybe? There's certain words that well, I heard a saw television show one time that used the phrase slippery words. Right, they just kind of jump out of your mouth before you before you can think about them. This happens a lot in marriages, doesn't it? Those slippery words pop out. Then you say, "Man, how did I say that?" It may happen at work. It may help. It may happen here or there or wherever. <clears throat> Paul or James says that the t- one of the tests of a Christian is can we control our tongues? Now we can't do that by ourselves because the tongue is a part of our flesh. We've got to be able to control our tongues. I could preach a whole. I could preach from now until Christmas. A series of sermons about controlling the tongue, about the importance of words. Let your grace, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but rather use your tongues for edifying each other. Over and over and over again, we're told the importance of the words that we say because they make all the difference in the world. They change everything, whether or not we can control our tongue. How do we do when it comes to what we say? I would would almost challenge us. I I don't want to do it because I don't want to fill up a book. How many times I say something stupid and then regret it? I think I mean it, it would be a fascinating study, wouldn't it? How many times between now and next Sunday am I going to say something stupid that I wish I hadn't said? The first test is we can have let that we control our tongue. James says that if you can control your tongue, you're a mature Christian. We need to strive by God's help to control our tongues. That's the first test he gives here of a of a godly man or a truly religious person. So yeah, first of all, we have yeah, the notion there must be a controlled tongue. The next thing we see here is a compassionate heart. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, then that one's religion is useless. Here's how we describe pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father. Two things left, but we won't be a whole lot longer. Next thing he says, you must visit the orphan and the father, fatherless in their trouble. The second test is not only um, controlling our tongue, but having a compassion in their heart. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. To meet the needs of others. James uses orphans and widows here because they're a real picture of those who are the most helpless. That's why he used that illustration. But there are people all around us with needs. I read my, I'm reading, as I said, in Galatians this week. And there's a section in Galatians where Paul has to confront Peter about Peter's hypocrisy. 
I find that fascinating. Why are why are we privy to Paul correcting Peter for his hypocrisy? Peter and some other believers, they acted one way among the Gentile believers and they acted another way among the Jewish believers. Among the Jewish believers, they kept the law. Among the Gentile believers, they didn't keep the law. And their hypocrisy was causing all kinds of troubles in the church. Paul had to call them out for that. I think that shows us that even Bible characters are human. They did stupid things. Even Peter, one of the greatest Christians ever lived, was, was, was hypocritical in his dealings with those, with those around him. And, but anyway, they got their problem worked out, and they, they were able to solve their issues, uh, just like they did. And yet, one thing that sticks out in that verse, at the, in the middle of that study, um, Paul wrote, they agreed one thing, remember the poor. Isn't that astounding? You know, when, when Paul, we, we, we were in the book of Acts not too long ago, we talked about when Paul left their church at Ephesus. And the last thing he said to the church, but to the church at Ephesus, was to remember the poor. God expects his people to have compassionate hearts. We can't afford, we can't afford to be cold-hearted toward those with genuine needs. I was challenged with that because we have really... The church has primarily abrogated our responsibility to the state to care for people, haven't we? We let the state take care of it. And therefore, but you know what? There are still needs out there. God expects us to care for the poor. Since the very beginning, caring for the poor was part of the law. And it's the one thing that carries on from, it's the one thing that carries on from the law is to care for the poor. We need to have compassionate hearts. We need to be aware of needs of those around us. We need to be aware of the, of the struggles they're going through. There's a crying need for those who are dedicated to helping others. Isaiah 58 talks about revival, about what true revival is. And back in Isaiah 58, we read true revival means to, to comfort the afflicted and to care for the poor and take care of those around us. It's a very physical work. We can think our Christianity is just a mental or a spiritual work. But it's a physical work. And part of what we have to consider as we're looking at taking steps forward, what can we do in our church to take, what can we do in our church to be more aware of the poor and to meet the needs of people around us? Um, huge responsibility. So we want to, we want to, we're looking at, do, do we have a controlled tongue? Do we have a compassionate heart? And the last thing is verse, verse 27, is we need to have a clean life in verse 27. To keep himself unspotted from the world. Boy, I tell you, there is plenty out there to spot us as believers. It's everywhere. And it's even more everywhere it was than when I was a young man. When I was a young man, you got your newspaper, basically, you got your newspaper, either your morning or afternoon newspaper, and there were three channels on the television, very strictly controlled. Um, if you wanted to find bad stuff, you had to go to the to a bad place to get bad stuff. All right, you had to know somebody. You had to go. Everything was hidden behind brown wrappers, and all that kind of stuff was going on. But now the wickedness is right there in front of us. You can't avoid it. It's every place we look. Every every, every website you go to, if you look at something's going to pop up, or there's going to be a link to another site, and all kinds of junk is out there everywhere for us to draw us away. There's stuff that it encouraged. Uh, there, there was an ad in the states, okay, um, and, and and this ad was for was on um, college was college football game, 
and they start in the morning over there, the college football, American football games start. And Coors Light was advertising that this was a great, basically, it's the perfect beer to have with breakfast when you're watching the football game. You say, well, nothing wrong with having a beer. No, there's nothing wrong necessarily with having a beer. What kind of mindset is that teaching? If you're going to start drinking in the morning with breakfast, all right, see the mindset that's being taught there? And that kind of stuff is everywhere. There's all kinds of wickedness. You look at the politics. You look at the things that are going on. Major world leaders on both sides of the Atlantic are setting examples of hate-filled rhetoric. And if we're not careful, we get sucked into that way of life. To keep yourself unspotted from the world. If we want to have pure religion, undefiled religion... We need to be able to not let the filthy world out there take control of us. A lot of things we could talk about here. Um, there's a downward progression that takes place. James 4.4 4 warns about being having a friendship for the world. 1 John chapter 2 talks about a love for the world. And then Romans chapter 12 says being conformed to the world. So we start out just being buddy-buddy with the world. And we have to do that, right? We've got to be friends with those around us. But then if we're not careful... We begin to love their way of life. And that's we've got to make a change. We don't love their way of life. And once we start loving their way of life, we end up being conformed to the world. Dangers we have to watch out for. Don't be spotted by the world. Um, the test of... the test of. Look at Ephesians 5. I want you to see the kind of... What a clean life means. It's stuff, guys, this is not easy stuff. Ephesians chapter 5. Um, there are things that are not to be... Ephesians 5 verse 1 begins with this. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. We're to copy God. Walk in love as, as Christ hath also loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness of covetousness let it not even be named among you as fitting or suiting saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicators or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Verse 7, don't be partakers with them. Guys, we've got to be careful. We live in a day where a lot of churches and a lot of Christians have adopted the idea that the best way to reach the world is for me to fit in with the world. I fit in with the world, and if I fit in with the world, then I'm going to have a chance to reach the world. Um, so I've told some of you this. The most preposterous example of this is when I first got saved. And there was a girl in the, that I knew there, and she was in the Christian group there, and she, she, um, she really believed that the best way to get close to a guy and share the gospel with him was to spend the weekend with him and sleep with him. Again, she's really got to know him and all that kind of stuff. Did you hear what I said? She claimed to be a Christian. She said the best way to be a witness to a guy was to sleep with him. Okay? That's absurd, right? But do we really do any worse than that when we conform ourselves to the world to reach the world? What draws the world to us is our unspotted life because that is where the difference is. They see a difference in life as we don't partake with the world. 
Why would people want to come to Christ when we do the exact same things they do? Where, where's the draw? Where's the attention? James says this, there's three real tests of being a doer of the world. Do we have a controlled tongue? Do we have a compassionate heart? And do we live a clean life? Be a doer of the word. Guys, I love my Bible. I love it. I I spend time in it every single day. But if I don't take this Bible and not just read it into my head, but if I don't don't let it be grafted into my heart, then I'm why why bother? Why 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 waste time with it if I'm not going to let it be grafted into my life and begin to change my life? And some of the tests of of that grafting into our lives of being a doer and not just a hearer is are our tongues controlled? Are our hearts compassionate? And are our lives clean? Are we being doers of the word? Are we just coming here Sunday after Sunday, coming to Bible study, doing our devotions, and nothing changing our life? Are we walking out with that piece of spinach in our front tooth that we saw in the mirror? Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge. Lord, I pray that we might indeed strive to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, I pray that our lives would, would, would manifest, that we would allow your word to be grafted into our lives so that the fruit we bear changes and we become an example to those around us. Lord, give us controlled tongues. Lord, give us compassionate hearts and give us clean lives so that we make a difference in the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing.